0: And now the Federal Drive with Tom Temin.
1: Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Monday, August twenty first, twenty twenty three, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian. Our digital editors, Daisy Thornton and Darius Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of the Federal Drive, a focus on the IRS. The IRS hasn't quite reached a state of total zero trust on its networks, but it's close. Plus, if a new tax law perplexes the public. It makes life difficult also for the IRS. Those stories much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, the Department of Homeland Security and the General Services Administration are getting a cash influx to complete a handful of new construction projects. The funds will go toward new headquarters offices for the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency and the Immigration and Customs Enforcement. And you guess where? At St. Elizabeth's West Campus in D.C., where they're also building a new parking garage. The three projects are part of a long saga, a long saga for DHS headquarters consolidation. Here with more, Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. And Drew, I just have to begin by saying I started covering this project when you were in grade school. So (laughs) finally, you are covering it now as one of our fine reporters. Tell us more about this money, where it's coming from and how it's going to be broken down.
2: Thanks, Tom. And, you know, this money is coming from the Inflation Reduction Act. It's coming just that we're hitting one year of the passage of that big bill, and they'll be getting $288 million for these three new construction projects. And as you said, there has been this long saga of the DHS consolidation of their headquarters at St. Elizabeth's. These are the kind of final three big construction projects that are going to be underway pretty soon that will kind of bring that chapter to a close for VHS. It's still a while down the road, but it is a step in that direction. Breaking down the funding, it's going to be about $140 million for the CISA headquarters, $80 million for ICE headquarters, and then $67 million for that garage and gatehouse that will expand parking at the at the campus as well.
1: Well, hopefully it'll have those little green and red lights so you can find a parking space. You know, that's what modern parking structures have. <laughs> and they are going to have a big emphasis, I guess not surprising, on sustainability, the latest in architectural work for buildings that don't use so much power. Tell us more about GSA's goals there.
2: Right. Because this was part of the Inflation Reduction Act funding and with GSA's goals of kind of moving toward this more sustainable federal building and those uh, types of buildings, there is a really big emphasis here, of course, on sustainable architecture as well. So that includes maybe, for example, in the parking garages, they're going to have electric vehicle charging stations. In terms of the actual building materials, they're going to be using low-carbon concrete, steel, and asphalt for the new construction. They're also going to be repairing existing structures, so not everything is going to be entirely new. And as I mentioned, this falls in line with both the goals of the IRA as well as larger sustainability goals from the Biden administration. GSA Administrator Robin Carnahan told reporters on campus just last week what those sustainability plans will look like.
3: We're going to be reducing the carbon footprint of these facilities dramatically. Uh, We're going to be lowering energy costs because of uh, smart uh, investments in solar panels and LEDs and digital-controlled lighting. It's going to lower energy consumption, and that means lower costs and a more resilient grid. In the end, what we want is for this to be a model, a model for what we can do here and around the country. Because guess what? If we can do this in a national security setting, it can be done anywhere
1: where the public could actually walk in and see the darn thing it's not so easy to get in and drew this headquarters consolidation project has been going on for years as we said at the top first announced in 2007 in fact I walked through the old spooky leftovers of the St. Elizabeth's Hospital itself with then administrator Loretta Doan she wasn't there much longer but yes, so I'm kind of excited to see this myself, and I know they fixed up that building for headquarters of DHS, but what has been taking so darn long?
2: Well, first of all, Tom, I think it's in part just because it's such an ambitious project. It's one of the biggest federal building projects since the construction of the Pentagon. So that it's just the sheer size and scope of the project is one of the reasons it's been taking so long. But other than that, they've also had uh, issues with budget and scheduling challenges, GSA and DHS have had to go back to the drawing board more than once to deal with all these different uh, budget constraints from Congress and other scheduling issues. There have been delays in construction. It's been ongoing now for more than 13 years. In the end, even though they've had some issues with, with congressional appropriations that they've been requesting, they have come to a grand total so far of $3.2 billion in congressional appropriations over the this whole time period that they construction has been going on. It's a huge project, a huge undertaking, and I think that this funding might represent a step closer toward the finish line. I think they're looking just a few years out from now for when it's going to be completely done.
1: Yes, and part of the problem is when Congress delays money, costs go up, and so they have never really funded it fully so they could get it, you know, done at one fell swoop, but Mal, maybe they will. And what about the consolidation? Are they saving overall footprint space versus what they have now scattered throughout different parts of Washington? I mean, I remember when early on in the days of DHS, they were everywhere. And then they have this Northwest headquarters, you know, not too far from Maryland border and so on. Are they going to reduce their total footage when they're done?
2: By a lot, Tom. I think this is going to represent a major decline in the actual physical footprint that DHS does take up. The cost savings as well to the taxpayer. They talked about that a lot at this press conference that's going to save $1.3 billion over the next 30 years. DHS has 22 components, so there's a lot of different moving parts here. But the idea at the end of the day is to consolidate leadership, staff members for better collaboration, and just take up a smaller physical space. It's also a more secure setting at St. Elizabeth's campus and DHS Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas described what this will mean for the department.
1: We'll take our total number of locations from 40 to 6. This will reduce the DHS footprint by over 1.2 million square feet. That is 27.5 acres of land or the equivalent of 21 football fields of space. Doing so will save the taxpayers tens of millions of dollars annually. Bringing the DHS, CISA, And ICE together under one roof at St. Elizabeth's will increase departmental mission cohesion and streamline inter- and
4: intra-component collaboration.
1: And probably four secretaries past him will actually set foot in the place. And when do they plan to start actual digging their shovels hitting the ground? And do they have a completion date?
2: They're planning to start on the CISA headquarters building first in early 2024, so just a couple months away now, and then late 2024 will be the ICE headquarters building. That's when they're going to break ground for that one. They're saying that once those construction projects are completed, about 6,500 DHS staff will be moved to St. Elizabeth's campus, and by the end of the overall project, that whole campus will house about 12,000 DHS employees, so that's a huge growth over time. The current estimate for total. Total completion is 2027.
1: Any chance there will be, say, a Chick-fil-A on the campus (laughs) so people don't have to drive for a half an hour just to get somewhere for lunch?
2: You know, I guess anything is possible as long as you get through the security checkpoints.
1: (laughs) All right. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman, thanks so much. Thank you. And be sure to check out her story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, if a tax law seems complicated to the public, it makes life difficult for the IRS, too. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Drama over the IRS is now mostly confined to Congress. The agency has returned more or less to normal, dealing with the day-to-day complexities of taxes. The National Taxpayer Advocate Service has also been dealing with vexing, if not existential issues. We talk about a few of them right now with the National Taxpayer Advocate herself, Erin Collins. Ms. Collins, good to have you back.
0: Tom, always good to chat with you.
1: And one of those vexing, day-to-day, plain old-fashioned tax administration issues concerns this 1099-K form. This is a form that was, is it new? Is it revised? And I guess a lot of people don't understand what they're supposed to do with it. And the uh, Taxpayer Advocate Service is jumping in here.
0: So the challenge is Congress changed the law about a year ago. And I think a lot of small companies and individuals were not really impacted because the law required that third-party companies, such as the Venmo, uh, the Cash App, uh, PayPal, that they would file these forms But the amount was for $20,000 or more, or you had more than 600 transactions. So most of the individuals that use the Venmos of the world did not meet that requirement. But the law was changed to drop that down to one transaction of $600 or more. So needless to say, I suspect millions of taxpayers are now going to fall into that bucket. So that's a real challenge. Last year, the IRS postponed the reporting date. Right now, it is scheduled to start in 2024, so if you are an individual and you're using, again, we'll use Venmo for purposes of discussion. Venmo, for example, you and I have lunch once a month, and I want to use my credit card so I can get my points, and so you reimburse me through Venmo, and by year-end, we have more than $600 of charges. I will then get a 1099K from Venmo for what is not a taxable event. So that's a real challenge for folks is we need to make sure that the consumers slash the taxpayers are correctly reporting those transactions to Venmo so that Venmo does not then issue a 1099-K for personal use. So that's a real challenge for taxpayers right now is during the year being proactive to make sure that they aren't reporting personal on those types of accounts. So Venmo and others have come out and said maybe you should consider having two separate accounts, one for personal and one for business, so that you do not cause that particular issue. And then the IRS has indicated that if you do get a 1099K when it was for personal, not for goods or services, that you should reach back out to the issuer to ask them to reissue it. I don't want to be negative, but I think if next year come January, February, March, millions of people reach out to Venmo and say, please reissue my 1099-K, it's not going to be a quick process. So the IRS has guidance out there as to what you should do if you get the 1099-K, how you can report it, and in essence, back it off the return so you don't have a mismatch with your 1099-K. So there's going to be a lot of confusion, and I suspect a lot of errors that are going to be made on this particular
1: issue. If an individual is paying, say, a personal services provider, say, I don't know, a gym trainer, an individual that accepts Venmo, your payment to that person would not be what triggers the 1099K, or would it? That person receiving it, to that person, it's income. So they would have to report it anyway.
0: Yeah. So in your example, only the one receiving the payment, so the person providing the gym services, and that should be taxable. So that would be appropriate use of the 1099-K. It would report hypothetically you paid them $50 for that service. That should be taxable by that individual. So that is a proper transaction versus if you and I, as I gave the example earlier, have lunch, that should not be taxable to me because you are just reimbursing me for your portion of the lunch. That's where the challenge is going to come in is I think a lot of individuals who are paying For example, we're seeing people help their children and they're sending them money at college. You know, here's money to pay your rent or here's money to pay your food this month. That child potentially is going to get a 1099K if it's not done correctly. So that's a real challenge. I don't think we want millions of people having these 1099Ks for non-taxable events.
1: Right, so you have to make sure that you classify and do the Venmo or whatever it is transaction correctly so that you don't invoke one for these kinds of things.
0: Right, so some of the applications indicate you can put for purchase, which again then the recipient would potentially get a 1099K versus personal. I think the safest way is to have a personal account that everything is personal and you set it up with the Venmo company that this is for personal use versus a business account. So that is one way to do it. I know a lot of practitioners have given advice that if you do receive a 1099K next year and it's for personal, that depending on if it's personal versus a hobby versus investment, there are different ways you can report it on the return. So our hypothetical example of we like to have nice lunches, you pay me $1,000 for the year, I would then report the $1,000 would back it off and indicate on my tax return that was for personal and it was not for goods and services. And then I would zero it out. And that way, my tax return would match the IRS's records of the 1099-K.
1: We're speaking with National Taxpayer Advocate Aaron Collins. This sounds like one of those cases where Congress does something and the IRS not only gets the work, but also gets a lot of the ire because of it.
0: Yeah, and I think there's going to be a lot of questions when those 1099-Ks are issued that individuals, the consumer or the taxpayer, is going to be asking, what do I do with this? And not understanding the consequences of either ignoring it if they think, hey, it's just personal and therefore not taxable, or if they report it, do they understand how they can back it off their return so they're not paying on tax for something that's personal?
1: So this could cascade to the call centers, to the inbound mail and email queries, and therefore cause another possible logjam like they had during you know, the bad years of the pandemic.
0: Yeah, that is a concern, and we need to get the message out as soon as possible so that people that are filing those returns do it appropriately so they don't have to deal with the consequences and the IRS isn't overwhelmed by the increased calls or, as you said, the paper coming in the door.
1: And that whole discussion of workloads and inbound mail comes to the topic of staffing at the IRS. Now, the Treasury Inspector General for Tax Administration has issued a report saying that the IRS needs to do a better job of using special incentives to get bodies in for those critical jobs. And you've had a lot to say about that, too, over a task.
0: Yeah, I think the first year I arrived here in 2020 as part of our annual report to Congress, we made it our number one most serious problem for taxpayers because if the IRS cannot hire and retain good employees, that impacts taxpayer service. So, like Tigda, we very much support the IRS using the special payment incentives, you know, to get the right folks into the door you know hiring in my opinion provides both an opportunity and a challenge you know every irs employee is important to you know the mission but at the same time some of the positions that we have and the skill sets that we have are mission critical and as the irs in essence rebuilds and really focuses on its it and other functions we need to try and attract those folks from the outside that have a unique skill set that we need for mission critical work so the special payment incentive is a great way to encourage some of those folks to want to come in and provide public service to kind of give them that extra incentive to come in the door.
1: And these are not gigantic payments. These are not $100,000 types of bonuses. It's, in the grand scheme of things, not big money, fair to say.
0: Yeah, it's, it's an extra incentive. Uh, usually it's somewhere in, you know, anywhere from 5 10 or 15% of the potential salary for a particular year. So, again, it's it's not the large dollars. I think most people that come in to an organization like the IRS, a a federal agency, it really is because they are inclined to look towards public service. Um, I like to think that our IRS TAS employees, you know, they're here to make a difference in the lives of taxpayers, and they're here to improve tax administration and service. A lot of our folks are not here, you know, similar to the outside for the larger dollars, They're here to make a difference. But having that additional or compensation is important to get the right people in the door. So I'm a big proponent of trying to equalize both the public with the private sector and whatever we can do to help get the right people in the door and also retain our folks.
1: And I said at the outset, that was my thought, that the IRS has more or less reached equilibrium compared to the stormy last couple of years. I should ask if that's your assessment. And what you are going to be looking at, you know, as another tax season approaches, we're still a few months away. We've got a budget cycle to complete between now and then, and that affects everybody.
0: I said in my June report to Congress that the filing season this year was night and day from the filing season in the previous year. I'm not sure I'm as rosy as you are as we've reached the equilibrium from pre-COVID years. We have made substantial progress in the filing season, But the IRS still has a long way to go in order to get to what I would call the quality service that taxpayers are entitled to.
1: And since you and I last spoke, we have a new commissioner for the IRS. Danny Werfel has been in there. Are you in touch with him regularly? Because I think he understands these issues from what I know of him and that these are high priorities there, too.
0: Yeah, as a national taxpayer advocate, I have the honor of being a direct report to the commissioner. So I have the opportunity to chat with him on a regular basis, involved in many meetings with the commissioner and others. I do think that you know he's come in in a very interesting time, and also it's a great opportunity because Congress has given the IRS additional funding. I think there's a challenge of we want to make sure that we don't lose any more funding because we need to be transformational. We need to have the IRS be a different organization than it was last year or the previous years. And, you know, that unfortunately takes funds as well as having good employees. So I think he very much understands the challenges that he's facing and the challenges that the agency is facing. But he's been a pleasure to work with. And as I said, we we have a big task ahead, and I think we have our eyes open wide, but we do realize things are getting better, but we got a long way to go.
1: And just an unrelated question on something I just learned recently is that there are somewhere around 150 people in federal agencies called the ombudsman, or now they call them ombuds, so they I guess, neutral word, and that the National Taxpayer Advocate, the Taxpayer Advocate Service, has been part of that community because, in a sense, you are a ombud for millions and millions of taxpayers. And what's going on in that particular community? And is this something that's growing, stable, or what do ombuds talk about?
0: Yeah. <laughs> you make it sound like it's a, a joke at a bar. What do they talk about? So basically, the agency was created back, and I believe it was 1996, and Taos has been lucky enough to be involved since inception. And it really is a way that the federal agencies the umbuns get together to talk about basically best practices, what we're seeing, what we're experiencing. You know, at that point, TAS stood up for at least five, ten years prior to joining, and we were able to bring in, you know, our experiences, what we've seen, and best practices. So a lot of it is based on education, sharing between agencies, you know, what they're seeing, you know, what they are accomplishing, what they can do, uh, looking at standards. And then the other thing that we're a little bit more unique than some of the other federal agencies, I would call us an advocacy ombudsman because by statute under 7803, Congress created us to have two hats. One is to advocate within the IRS and within Congress to make changes, but then at the same time we're also somewhat of an oversight function, which is more the ombudsman. So it's been a very interesting role. Um, Most of the other federal agencies only wear the hat of oversight. I think we're one of the ones that are unique where we have two hats. So we've discussed the differences as well as to what IRS has versus what the other federal agencies have and what works for us and versus what works for them. So it's it's been a great experience that we've, you know, had over the years. There's regular meetings, there's conferences, but it's in my opinion, it's been really helpful for us and hopefully we've shared our knowledge with them as well.
1: Erin Collins is the National Taxpayer Advocate. As always, thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And we'll post this interview along with links to some of her recent reporting at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive, file for the Federal Drive, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, all congressional eyes focus on the great question, CR or government shutdown. But first, the IRS hasn't quite reached a state of total zero trust on its networks, but it's close. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. The IRS has a detailed plan for achieving a state of zero trust on its information technology networks, something all agencies are under obligation to do for cybersecurity. But the IRS needs to put the right money and people behind the plan, according to an audit by the Treasury Inspector General for Tax Administration, TIGTA. We get more now from TIGTA's Director of Enterprise Services, Jenna Whitley. Miss Whitley, good to have you on. Thank you so much. Good morning. What was your main purpose in this particular audit? Just to see whether the IRS was following the executive order and the, and the subsequent guidance from OMB that went to every agency on this whole zero trust business?
5: Absolutely. You know, zero trust is actually a large umbrella strategy that combines a lot of different components and IT projects the IRS was already working on anyway. And what we wanted to do is take a look at their planning to address the OMB memo that you mentioned. And, you know, also the executive order came out the year before that, uh, Executive Order 14028. So we did want to look at how the IRS was addressing, you know, their future planning for, to achieve a zero trust architecture. So, you know, essentially the umbrella that includes, you know, all things zero trust architecture there are really kind of three major goals. The first being, and, and each of those goals builds on one another. The first being, you know, all users are untrusted. And that's not just addressing insider threat. That's looking at, you know, to address those situations where a network has been penetrated. So you shouldn't necessarily trust all internal traffic coming through that network or requests for data on that network. So that's really looking at how to confirm that all users, all devices are both authenticated and authorized, sure. with the eventual goal of verifying every access request every time. So that's, and, you know, and then we were just looking at how the IRS is pulling all of that information together for all the individual IT projects that they were already working on.
1: And you did find that they had developed a reference architecture, a roadmap, and a pilot program, which seems to put them probably ahead of a lot of agencies.
5: I can't necessarily speak to other agencies, but yes, they were definitely already midstream on this Zero Trust architecture implementation. They have a plan. We made a few recommendations that basically should improve Future planning, but they are already well underway in the world of zero trust architecture de- implementation for sure.
1: And they had also hired a contractor to kind of give a third party view, and you took a look at what that contractor found, fair to say?
5: Absolutely. We looked at, and the IRS had done their own internal assessment. The Department of Homeland Security issued its own zero trust maturity model for federal agencies to use. To evaluate their, essentially their progress on their zero trust implementation. The contractor that the IRS hired also looked at, you know, evaluated where the IRS was against those, that maturity model, of which there are five pillars. And I don't know if you're familiar with the model, but basically there's the identity issue that I already mentioned for user access management looking at devices, you know, are all devices uh, inventoried and, as I address, know how to prevent, detect, and respond to incidents on each of those devices. And then there's three other pillars. You've got applications and workloads, networks, and then data. And in each of those pillars, there's, you know, a list of capabilities that agencies should be prepared to deploy. And they range from routine empirical testing of applications, Monitoring vulnerability reports at the application level with regards to networks. You need to encrypt traffic, break down perimeter points of entry into isolated environments. And that's especially important uh, with an agency the size of the IRS. that spread throughout the country. And then looking at data, monitoring sensitive data, making sure that they're logging sensitive access, requests to sensitive data and that kind of thing. So the contractor also evaluated the IRS against their, you know, the CISA's maturity model. And, you know, they found that, yes, there's work that needs to continue developing, but overall, they're in a good position to continue this work.
1: We're speaking with Jenna Whitley. She's Director of Enterprise Services at the Treasury Inspector General for Tax Administration. And you found that, yes, they've got all these great plans, reference architecture, roadmap testing and so forth, but there's still some things they got to do to really push this big old boulder over the top of the mountain.
5: Yeah, that's right. Well, we recommended a couple of things. First of all, we wanted them to go ahead and try to develop a budget estimate for all of the various projects, initiatives they're working on that will help them achieve the zero trust architecture right now that information is spread across a number of different information technology functions the irs it organization is large they have a lot of you know great people working and on a lot of different priorities but as of yet there was not a consolidated sort of budget amount that could help them forecast how much all of this was gonna cost long-term. We also recommended they revise their Zero Trust Architecture plan to include defined roles and responsibilities. Again, that goes back to the IRS OIT organization being large and a lot of different efforts going on that will help address the Zero Trust Architecture, the various pillars and whatnot to help them achieve that maturity. Uh, that the CISA and OMB have asked them to do. The third is to enhance their roadmap to include completion schedule for some of these capabilities and prioritize activities within each of the five pillars of that CISA's maturity model that I mentioned. And finally, we asked them to reassess their Zero Trust architecture implementation progress against the maturity model to inform revised planning and budget formulation.
1: And just a an side question, maybe you looked at this, maybe not, but with the prospect of continuing resolution or even an interruption in appropriations coming on October 1st, could that hold off their plans, or is this something that could be classified under continuing efforts? And if they had even a CR, they could continue to spend on zero trust development.
5: I can't really comment on the what they would be spending their money on for continuing investment. Since so much of zero-trust architecture is cybersecurity-related, I can't imagine that that wouldn't be part of what they would do on a daily basis. It's it's a 24-7 operation, cybersecurity is.
1: Sure. And so is the IRS, for that matter. <laughs> I mean, there's always something coming or <laughs> yes. going out of there. And That's agents... right.
5: So, so much of zero-trust architecture is cybersecurity Already, you know, the nation's taxpayer data is not going to go unprotected.
1: And did the agency generally accept and agree with the recommendations? And what do they plan to do next, according to how they answered you?
5: They did. They agreed to all of our recommendations and planning is uh, ongoing. We probably end up revisiting this audit in the next fiscal year. I, you know, TIGDA has not completed its annual audit planning process yet. But I imagine we'll see more from them here in the future.
1: Well, I think the IRS CIO and technology shop has a lot of it's like a horse with a lot of flies to swat its tail at. But sounds like they've got this one under control in general.
5: In general, they're in a good they're in a good place.
1: Yes, sir. Jenna Whitley is Director of Enterprise Services at the Treasury Inspector General for Tax Administration, TIGTA. Thanks so much for joining me. You're
5: very welcome. Have a great day.
1: And we'll post this interview, plus a link to her report, at federalnewsnetwork.com slash federaldrive. Subscribe to The Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, all congressional eyes focus on the great question, CR or government shutdown. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Congress is still a couple of weeks away from returning to Washington. Still, pressure is building for members to resolve a difficult budget impasse as the prospects for a lapse in appropriations also seem to grow. We get more now from Bloomberg Government Deputy News Director Lauren Duggan. An absence, I guess, makes their hearts grow fonder. And the debates are, in some level, continuing here on what they will do about the budget, Correct.
4: That is correct. I mean, people have spread out around the country, around the world, if they're going on congressional delegations or CODELs, but there are still discussions happening behind the scenes over email, over conference calls about what to do with the budget impasse that you mentioned. Um, We have two chambers that are heading in somewhat different directions here. We have the addition of the supplemental funding requests that President Biden sent up a couple weeks ago. And we have the normal give and take that you need to have before the September 30th deadline to act on something that's all feeding together into this mix right now. Um, So there are questions about what can be done before the October 1st start of fiscal 2024.
1: And the Senate, if I'm correct, comes back a little bit sooner than the House, but they both kind of have to be here to vote on things And so there are very few days in the legislative calendar when they do return to get this done.
4: That's correct. We have the Senate coming back right now, September 5th, and then the House September 12th, a week later. So they'll be back after Labor Day and kick this off. Now, there may be enough... House members in town that first week to have discussions with their Senate counterparts. We've seen leaders from both chambers talk already about the need for a continuing resolution to keep things funded after September 30th. So we've seen those discussions. But you're right. Whatever they come to agreement on, they have to be back here and they have to vote and they have to get it through both chambers, which, you know, given the types of opposition they might face, won't necessarily be a foregone conclusion until they see what they have to vote on.
1: And there's some funny math going on in the House? Because you have one coalition there that is sort of against everything, you might say, and they could subtract enough votes out of the Republican bloc that require a certain number of Democrats to agree to something. So there's almost like three parties in some sense operating in the House.
4: That's right. And we saw that earlier this year on something like the debt limit agreement that Speaker McCarthy reached with President Biden, where they needed Democratic support to get that over the line and a lot of Democratic support. It may be a little easier sell to keep the government running while they continue to have the debates they want to have, but people might want to extract something out of that vote. So yes, we'll vote to keep the government open if you give us something. So those are the kind of negotiations that we'll see go on. A lot of this stems back to the spending caps that were put in place by that debt limit agreement. The House Republicans want to spend less than that. They see that as a ceiling, not a floor. The Senate Democrats and Republicans together have produced bills that would spend up to that. And then they're talking about spending more through a supplemental. So that's where this has gotten difficult, is that people think that the deal they negotiated isn't still in place. But as we saw right after those spending caps were announced, there were talks about, well, we might need a supplemental for Ukraine. And now clearly there's some needs for disasters, including the fires in Hawaii, that people are going to have to think how to address when they get back.
1: We're speaking with Lauren Duggan. He is deputy news director at Bloomberg Government. And the NDAAs, there was kind of an impasse there, too. Any progress happening in the last couple of weeks? Any private talks? Or is that going to be last minute also? And as we know, that one they like to get done in the calendar year.
4: Right. That's further along than spending because the House and the Senate have at least both passed their own versions of it that they can take to an eventual conference agreement. I wouldn't be surprised if there's been some behind-the-scenes discussions about that. The dynamic in that bill, though, is that the House adopted a number of amendments dealing with social issues, whether it's DOD abortion policy, things about DEI programs, CRT, critical race theory being taught in DOD schools, and those are provisions that are absent from the Senate bill. So that's a reconciliation process that's going to take a little bit of time between those bills but the big picture defense authorization number is pretty close and then i think there's a deal to be made on the numbers but then it's going to come down to what other language rides along for the final version of that and as you say That's not a September 30th problem as much as a December 31st problem, but it is something that lawmakers would like to make progress on and get done if they can.
1: Because there's plenty of break time between September 30th and December 31st, you know, Thanksgiving and Christmas, et cetera. So it's not like there's loads of time for any of
4: this. No, there's not. And there's other priorities, too, like an FAA bill and a farm bill reauthorization that they'll want to do this fall, plus the other you know, kind of cats and dogs legislation that's out there that they're going to have to address, whether it's deadline driven or just a priority that they'd like to get accomplished.
1: Yeah. What's the issue with FAA authorization? What is holding that up? I don't think there's any major policy things that we're aware of.
4: The House has passed a version of that bill, pretty bipartisan, and the Senate committee has been stalled for a little bit. There were some disputes about pilot training hours and provisions like that that they were trying to work out behind the scenes. We heard some positive news toward the end of the session before they left for the recess, I could see that maybe getting through the Senate and then them picking up and doing that. That may be a provision that needs to be extended as part of a continuing resolution, because there are some authorities the FAA needs to have in place that do expire and could have furlough implications, just given the way that some of the programs are funded there. So we may still be talking about an extension in September of those programs, but that does seem like if the Senate committee can get moving, there is a deal to be had on that legislation
1: any motion on the Tuberville hold on those military nominations? That seems to be really dug in deep.
4: That is dug in deep. And as we saw last week, um, I think it was the third picture in the wall of Joint Chiefs of Staff personnel that was replaced by a blank frame for now, because there are three members of that that are currently not in place. So, there has been a lot of pressure over the recess, both from the president, from the defense secretary and others to try to make progress on this, where the issue may be is what side jumps first and what sort of agreement can they make? Because you know, there's a preservation of the right of any senator to hold up nominations. And Democrats have said they don't necessarily want to validate that strategy that Tuberville has by trying to force individual votes on all these. So they're kind of stuck for right now. But this is something I definitely think we'll be watching in the fall because there are some key positions that have vacant.
1: And what about telework? Because Congress is of a mind. I mean, the administration wants people back at work in federal offices. There's a lot of pushback coming from the unions, which has made a couple of the agencies back down from plans they already announced. And then the White House chief of staff reinforced the request to get more in-person work, although they didn't specify full time five days a week for everybody and your boss of bosses up there at Bloomberg has been urging return to offices generally. So it's hard to know which way the tide is really going to end up here, and Congress could, if it chose, weigh in
4: here. Congress could weigh in through these spending bills, and as you mentioned, Michael Bloomberg, who's the the majority owner of our parent company, wrote a Washington Post op-ed calling for people at the federal government to come back downtown and go to work. They have been working remotely, obviously, but to fill the office space there. So this is a debate going on in businesses and associations across the country, and the federal government is part of this. Like you say, the Congress could weigh in. House Republicans, I think, have had some proposals on this in the past that they'd like to see a return to more in-office time, and there's pressure from the executive branch to do the same. So the tide may be headed toward more in-office time for federal workers, but... I'm not aware of anything today that they're looking to stick in a CR or something like that that would be immediate. But I do feel like the pressure is RTO return to office.
1: Lauren Duggan is Deputy News Director at Bloomberg Government. Thanks so much. Thank you. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Take the Federal Drive with you when you're on leave. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. End of note, Federal News Network will be hosting a special panel discussion with members of the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission and other federal officials this Monday, August 21st at noon, in commemoration of the 60th anniversary of the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. You can join us in person at EEOC headquarters. Space is limited, so you need to register at federalnewsnetwork.com. The military service academies have seen a spike in reported sexual assault and harassment over the past couple of years. A Defense Department study found that the academies need to change their culture and their leadership structure to solve that problem. Federal News Network's Alexandra Lohr joins me with some of the details. And tell us about some background here, Alex. What happened? What did the Pentagon find? And who did this whole study and report?
3: So last March, this report came out. And The results were pretty stunning. It showed that between 2020 and 2022, there was a spike of over 20% in reported sexual harassment, unwanted sexual contact for women, and 4% for men. So as a result of that report, they ordered this study to find out what was going on, what needed to be done about it. And the study was released yesterday. It involved 40 different visits to the different academies to kind of assess what was going on there, what the environment was like at the academies. One of the interesting things they found is that students coming into the academy are reporting more sexual abuse and sexual assault than in the past before they even get there. They think that might be because of COVID and that people staying at home had increased domestic assault problems. Anyway, after they visited the school, they tried to look at the the whole picture and What they needed to do. Here's Beth Foster, executive director of the Office of Force Resiliency for the Undersecretary of Defense for Personnel and Readiness.
6: We not only looked at sexual assault, but also overall climate challenges, prevention capabilities and upstream risk factors that may be driving a range of harmful behaviors to include not only sexual assault and harassment, but also suicide, retaliation, domestic violence, and child abuse.
1: And that's environmental factors, as she said, or pre-existing conditions, which the academy can't always control. But what about management? The report found issues with just how things are managed.
3: They did, and it had a lot to do with the structure of student leadership and also the professional leadership for the cadet units or midshipmen units at the different academies. And they said that while there were some themes in common, each academy sort of had its own specific problems. At the Air Force, the upperclassmen had a lot of control over underclassmen, and there were incidents of mistreatment, incidents of hazing. They felt like they need to give those, those upperclassmen less control over the younger students. At the Navy, students were being put in leadership positions, and their feedback was that they didn't know how to lead, so they led the way they had been treated when they were underclassmen, and sometimes that worked, and lots of times it didn't work. At West Point, it was interesting because the, the cadets said they went out in the field in the summers, and they worked with real leaders who had experience, and they came back to school, and their leadership didn't have that kind of training. and they wish that they had had that kind of leadership from the students and professionals right at their academy. This is uh, the Senior Prevention Advisor for the Department's Office of Force Resiliency, Dr. Audra Tharp.
6: Well, what we found was that the skills of those leaders closest to the cadets and midshipmen, these peer leaders who may be one or two um, years older who have a leadership role over the cadets and midshipmen, as well as the professional officers such as TAC officers or AOCs, um, are not sufficiently equipped, and in some cases, the peer leadership structure was actually creating unhealthy power dynamics that lead to hazing that
5: further exacerbated this risk.
1: Which is kind of interesting because upon graduation, those people will become commissioned officers and presumably they'll learn a thing or two about proper leadership, you know, by the time they leave the academies. And so these issues with bad power dynamics and I was hazed, so I'm going to haze you, this type of thing, how did this all play out for the students themselves?
3: Dr. Tharp said it created a culture of cynicism and stigma and people feeling very negative about their experience at the academies. And she said that that actually is going right where you said. It's it's going right back out into the field. They graduate and they take those learned experiences with them as they go out to lead troops. So that was a big concern. She gave a couple examples of things that actually had occurred at academies. Here's one of them.
6: So in one instance, a cadet or midshipman, had experienced a family tragedy, and they had sought mental health care off the installation because um, there was some stigma about seeking help on the installation on, at the academy. But they weren't actually allowed to get the help because they weren't allowed to leave the base because their unit had had a minor violation the week before. So the influence of that event wasn't just about that cadet or midshipman not getting the help they needed at that moment, but it sent the message to them and their peers Um, that this is how you lead, this is how you care for people, and they took that out into the
1: force. Or how you don't care about people, I guess, is what she meant to say. And so what recommendations, then, did this latest report have, Alexandra?
3: We had a bunch of different recommendations. First and foremost, there needed to be a change in leadership so that you can't have untrained young upperclassmen treating the underclassmen this way and creating a toxic environment. They also felt that students at the academies need much better access to mental health care. They need more counselors. They need embedded mental health care providers. The stigma needs to be taken away of seeking that help because it's a, it's a tough competitive four-year program and those kids need some help at times. And, and they need to feel like they can do that. The other interesting thing she talked about was social media. And you may recall that at Virginia military Academy, there was a with a social media platform called Yodel, where students were allowed to anonymously criticize other students. Apparently this is a, a big source of problems also at the service academies. Here's Audra Tharp.
6: One of the key recommendations in this area really focuses on social media and ensuring that social media is not a source of misinformation and bullying there are certain applications and approaches that just are used more at the service academies than we see at civilian universities. So it's a key opportunity to stop that misinformation.
1: Maybe they should call it anti-social media because that's what most of it is. And Alex, then what happens next? The report is out. It built on that study that was done earlier, released in March. That seems to be like a roadmap. What happens next?
3: They do have a roadmap. And the heads of each of the service academies have until October 31st to come up with a plan of action to get this thing under control. And at that point, they're supposed to move forward pretty quickly and start fixing these problems.
1: Federal News Network's Alexandra Lohr. Thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And be sure to check out her story at federalnewsnetwork.com. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm Tom Temen.